This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. In recent years, museums, the items they hold, how they came to be there, and whether they should be returned to their place of origin, has become the subject of fierce political debate. There are thousands of museum pieces in Western cities that were looted, stolen, or even bought in exploitative transactions during the colonial era. Should those items now be returned? Or is this just a pointless example of woke virtue signaling? Well, to discuss this really tricky issue, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dan Hicks, Professor of Contemporary Archaeology at the University of Oxford and Curator of World Archaeology at the Pitt Rivers Museum there in Oxford. He's also the author of a fascinating book published in 2021, The Brutish Museums. Dan, welcome. Hello, Arthur. Lovely to meet you. Good to be here. Dan, uh, thank you for joining us. This question of museum items, and particularly here in Britain, where our colonial history means that we have huge numbers of precious artefacts that are not British in origin, uh, notably the British Museum itself, uh, some have said, isn't, is hardly British, given its content. Um, could you sort of sum up what is the current state of play in this so-called restitution debate? Sure, absolutely. Um, what restitution has, has been about for 100 years or so is about the question over responding to uh, demands for returns of items taken under circumstances which were either violent or were in some way unfair, and where that item is really important in the, uh, the present. So the restitution movement, in terms of how it influenced our work in the museums as curators, started really in terms of the practice around the very different sort of issues over Holocaust restitution, the return of uh, Nazi loot. And it's really based on that evolution of the professional practice in our museums that's been open to those issues, that we're now seeing these issues over the return of art, uh, not least to the continent of Africa. But it has to be a case-by-case approach. This isn't about emptying out our museums. Nobody's saying that every object should be returned to, to every location from which it was made. You know, that, 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 that is absolutely not what this is about. It's about being open to return when asked. Yeah, of course. And, and in, in just to take example of the British Museum, but I know that this is the case with most museums, that what you see on public display is only a fraction of the holdings of the museum. So the idea that the museum would sort of end up with nothing is, 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 is not plausible. Yes, absolutely. I mean, even for those most, uh, you know, iconic of objects like the uh, the Benin you know, bronzes, which, of course, I mean, I wrote my uh, book about, even in that case, the objects on display at the British Museum, they say maybe 100 objects, I count a few less than that in terms of what are actually on display. But that is out of a total collection at the British Museum of about 950 objects. So, so much of this conversation is really about what's hidden away in the storerooms and why on earth we would want to hold on to these things that nobody could see that are hidden away, in some cases in a box that hasn't been opened for 100 years. 
Yeah. Let's talk a bit about the Benin bronzes because they have perhaps become one of the, the most discussed elements of this story. Uh, as, as you mentioned, it, it's that they were um, looted. I think I'm right in saying about 10,000 items were taken from what is now uh, part of modern day Nigeria and then was the kingdom of Benin. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a part of it, and it speaks to the last issue that you raise. And, and so, let's not lose sight of that as we move into the case of the Benin bronzes. We don't know how much was actually taken. The numbers available range from two and a half thousand to five thousand plus. We don't know how many were taken. By the maybe two hundred soldiers and the sailors and administrators who were part of this chaotic free for all. You know, and I think that's part of the point. The knowledge was part of what was destroyed, the the knowledge of what was there in the first place. And important to say that you, you mentioned this sort of chaotic environment with various armies and so on, that, that no one was, even in a sort of exploitative environment, no one was sitting down and, and, and um, agreeing a price for these things. They were literally just seized. So I used to believe what I'd always been told about the Benin expedition, that there was some grim logic for the attack because the items that were taken were sold off to defray the costs of that expedition, which we were told in the literature was a necessary expedition against a rogue you know, kingdom. The reality mm. that I found in writing the book was incredibly different. And I looked, actually, I spent a good several months looking for what so many authors and secondary authors up into the 90s had referred to, which was this great auctioning off of the items. And in fact, a few hundreds, I think 198 in total of the uh, the bronzes were taken to the British Museum. About 100 more that were taken officially were sold off. That is a tiny number compared to what was just taken by individuals. And that's the point, the sheer violence of the taking of, importantly, what were not only sacred objects, but also items that related to sovereignty and, importantly, to the culture of what is now Nigeria. So that enduring attempt to undertake a cultural dispossession, to reduce an African nation simply to a ground zero and to put all the culture you know, into London and New York and to say, absolutely, we have blown you back to the Bronze Age. We're going to exhibit your objects in the museum alongside, as they were in the British Museum at first, you know, in the Assyrian Saloon, alongside objects... Right from ancient Egypt and from the Bronze Age of the ancient Near East. You know, this is how these objects were displayed in order to tell the story that somehow this uh, kingdom might have made art which Westerners can respond to and appreciate. And I think what we're learning now more than anything is in this window of the history of museums, the complex history of museums, from, let's say, the 1880s into the 1920s, Museums were put to work for a very specific end, which is, you know, I think absolutely against the ends of what our museums are for, you know, today, which was the ideas over, you know, cultural supremacy, the taking of objects with violence in order to make a claim to sovereignty and power. That's what we're dealing with now. We're dealing with the remnants of what the museum was maybe circa 1900, but which it certainly isn't. There's so much more that we can do with the World Culture Museum in the present. We've never needed World Culture Museums more than we do right now. We just need World Culture Museums that are not filled with stolen objects that someone somewhere is asking for to be returned. I mean, there are so many fascinating questions that arise from this, but I suppose one, perhaps a bit, a bit devil's advocate here, but 
you're describing and, and sort of diagnosing the function of a museum in the sort of high imperial era. And mm. it's easy to understand how you would seek to sort of demonstrate, in this case, Britain's supremacy over other nations in, in the way that it displayed some of its items. But someone who, who disagreed with you and your approach now might say, well, you're just proposing a new orthodoxy, which is a, a kind of international liberal orthodoxy that says that, uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't um, sort of valorize one culture above another, that we should seek to learn from a wider variety of cultures. And And I suppose it's not impossible that you know, a hundred years from now, people will will look to this era and and question our motives and our actions. Oh God, it's so boring, isn't it? I know. Well, <laughs> I guess we have to listen to those, you know, those, those voices that we that seek to weaponize these conversations and to and to pretend that it's something woke, it's something part of a culture war. You know, I'm doing my job, and what's unhelpful is for museums to keep in step with their times for certain voices from the hard right to seek to weaponize these issues and pretend and to stop us from allowing museums to be part of the societies in which we find ourselves now and to change museums i mean imagine any other institution across you know business or government or education or knowledge in our museums imagine if this was applied to another discipline other than anthropology you know biology yeah. or physics imagine if we could never change what we thought or what we understood about the world it's crazy and there's something about the museum that attach it that yeah that attracts these arguments to people saying well it must never change that of course was a was 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 a key part of why museums were so attractive in the proto-fascist period of the late 19th century when of course we saw the physical human remains also used in these ways to create the displays of the fake race science skulls lined up to tell the racist lie that there were different species of human you know after we beat the fascists in 1945 one of the first things that happened in our museums, you know, across Europe and in the, you know, North America was any last remaining displays of that kind were removed because it was bad science. It was simply incorrect. Those objects of art and culture that were put on display at the same time period for the same reason to tell a story over supremacy, although it was a cultural supremacy, not a racial supremacy, we left them untouched. And now we're finding that we cannot simply leave them alone. So, so yeah, I think I'm old enough now to remember, you know, to remember that in the 1990s, there were voices that argued against, with the same arguments, argued against the return of uh, Nazi loot, mm. arguments over the return of indigenous ancestral human remains, which, of course, when they are returned, are buried. They're given some semblance of uh, dignity after such years of being abused in the context of being on display or being kept in the museums. I remember those arguments saying, oh, if we return artworks, they won't be on display to the world. If you return ancestral remains, it'll be a loss to scientific knowledge because these objects will be, you know, buried. They're not objects. They're ancestors. They're human beings. We won those arguments rightly. So I think, yeah, though, those, all those voices, there's so much whataboutism. There's so much where will it endism. We're now talking about the Parthenon marbles. We're now talking about the return of the statues to Easter Island. And before you know it, the conversation is about whether the Lewis uh, chessmen should be taken back to the beach in the Outer Hebrides where they were found. This has been the approach. This has been the media strategy. But, you know, time's up for those old arguments because the case-by-case -case approach has been proven to work in these other cases and we can't hold back anymore. 
in having a rule that will never give back stolen goods. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Are there um, specific historical aspects to this? Because I was thinking that you know, when we're talking about the late 19th century, it is a, a fairly well-documented time. And not to say that everything is straightforward and you've described your own research. But if you were looking at an earlier era, which, as it happens, is before the main era of sort of European colonialism, there is less information available to us. And so it is it is less likely that these questions are arise. So is that a sort of accident of history or is it something more fundamental? No, I think it's very much fundamental to an unfolding of an understanding of the later phases of imperialism, which is happening across Europe at the moment. You know, we're seeing restitution led uh, by Macron in France, by the federal yeah. government in uh, Germany, hand in hand with the Swiss and also the Belgians instigating national, you know, inquiries into colonialism, into the Belgian Congo, into the role of uh, government in relation to, to these later phases of empire. This is long after the periods that we in the UK have often focused on, importantly, the period of abolition and emancipation in relation to Caribbean enslavement. Hmm. You know, much more to, I mean, we're seeing reparations, of course, you know, now being talked about there, and those are incredibly important conversations. But here, we're talking about a later phase of colonialism, you know, which, which again, in my book, I argue, was a distinctive extractivist phase, distinct from the settler colonialism that we often think about. It's also significantly later in, in sort of time. This is the mid to late 19th century, not least yeah. after, the, after the Berlin Congress of 1884, where the continent of Africa was famously divided up in between the European nations. The same year, 1884, as my book shows of the founding of the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, the same year as the invention of the Maxim, which is the machine gun that was so central to this new form of ultraviolence. That, that we see enacted that makes these attacks sort of possible. And then we see the culture of these societies that are being attacked in this way being put to work in the metropole. Um, but it takes such a lot for us to think of the museum as a weapon. It, it took a lot, of course, in the public conversations in North America, in the UK and across Europe uh, in 2020 and earlier to imagine that even a statue could be hurtful that art could be put to work for the purposes of a, of a vision of supremacy that is designed to hurt people in the present. But when we got the verdict on the Colston fall after the falling of Edward Colston in you know, Bristol, yeah. and in that case, the judge asked the jury to weigh up what he described as uh, two crimes, the crime of, you know, against the property and the enduring hate crime of the image of the celebration of a guy that died in the 17th or 18th century, erected in 1895, the same time period exactly as the Benin bronzes were being looted, and that recreation 
for the propaganda purposes of this image of empire. You know, the fact that we can see that in terms of art in the streets, increasingly, this this, this isn't me in the museum, this isn't those of us in academia. This is a public conversation that has realised, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. So in the beginning, you know, when you set up the podcast at the start, you were talking about the colonial era. For many people, this conversation is about how in certain parts of our society and culture, that era was made to last. And our museums are one of them. These, these are little sort of displays that were, that, that were planted there in order fundamentally to tell a story, but to tell a story that lasted. How you dismantle that story, how you deconstruct it is not easy, but restitution is a key part of it. Well, I, I'm glad you sort of got there because I, I actually wanted to sort of come on uh, you know, it is relevant. You're the curator of the Pitt Rivers Museum. You, you mentioned its foundation at the sort of high watermark of mm. colonialism. And of course, you know, for, for those that are not familiar, it is in some respects a bit of a monument to a kind of colonialist, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say an ideal, but a, a, a mm. form of practice. Um, it's a set of items that had meaning to some group of individuals that have been you know assembled by an elite of another culture and exists for the edification of that elite so is is there something so deeply problematic there that in spite of the the work that you're doing it's not possible to have a pit rivers museum that doesn't in some way valorize colonialism yeah so i'm much more optimistic than that you know in my view the museum existed long before it was co-opted for the purposes in the Physical Anthropology Museum of the Fake Race Science or in the World Culture Museum for the, for the display of loot in order to celebrate and to naturalise, you know, the victories that were won with such incredible violence. This fundamentally is why our colleagues at the Victoria and Albert Museum and elsewhere who, are, who have argued against restitution because we need to explain and retain these objects. If we gave objects back, we would be avoiding the important task of uh, telling the story and all with all of the blood and guts that we can possibly put into that narrative of how these objects were taken you know that misses the point that they were taken and displayed absolutely for the purposes to tell that story to tell the purposes of a of a technological of a military there thereby of a cultural supremacy of uh, Europe above Africa and elsewhere in the so-called global south so that's one phase though of the museum yeah it's a bit like, I think the predicament of the World Culture Museum is very much like the predicament in which we find anthropology as a discipline. We've never needed more in these times those forms of knowledge, those forms of uh, you know, public space, which, which I think the museum at its best can be. But that doesn't mean that we nostalgically hold on to every last action that any curator ever made Sometimes you have to remove and replace. This is not about shame or guilt. It's about understanding that our museums are in the present. A sort of final question, which I realise that, you know, straw men are to be found all over this debate. So I, I acknowledge that as I ask it. But it seems to me, does the situation in the receiving country or receiving institution matter? Because, you know, there's been debate around the ownership of the Benin bronzes once they reach Nigeria, and whether you know that, that that is a subject of some debate in Nigeria, there's also one could think of an example of a country like Syria, which has extraordinary archaeological 
history, but it's currently ruled by an ultra authoritarian murderous regime. Uh, would it make sense to, you know, restore items to Syria or say Iran, perhaps a, a similar argument? I, I know that everything is about case by case, and there, there aren't simple overarching themes. But what's your take on that that aspect of the debate? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean it's absolutely fair that you put these uh, bad faith arguments that we hear so much in the media. The uh, complexity is as complex as the number of objects in any world culture museum. But the point is, it it just doesn't work for us to say, on the one side, there are dangerous places in the world to which some objects should not be. I mean, that 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 seems to me just just a sort of it's just such a such an attempt to distract. In terms of the Nigerian question, yeah, I mean, this is not controversial. We have had for many many years in in the normal practice of restitution across the museum sector. The, the listening to claims and counterclaims, the working with the claimants towards how returns can happen is a normal part of our job. And the idea that somehow we in the West, in you know, Europe and North America, should, should be the, uh, the judge and the jury between an ongoing Nigerian conversation about ownership and value of sovereign artworks. Are they about national culture? Are they about the traditional sovereignty and the religion that's involved? That's a conversation that could go on for another 125 years or more within Nigeria. But it's one in which it's time for us as arbiters, as uh, you know, those attempting to control this conversation really need to step back. You know, as my book shows, every argument that's put about the return of the Benin bronzes, the idea that if you give them back, they'll be sold off on the market. If you give them back, they won't be you know, cared for and they, they will be in real world disarray. They won't even make a proper list of what's there. If you give them back, there'll be a war and they'll be destroyed by bombs. In reality, all of those ideas invented by some civil servant in the 1960s as an argument against the first wave of restitution claims that came from nation states after the year of Africa in 1960 with the wave of independence there. Yeah. All of those things actually happened in reality to objects in UK museums. So we don't we still don't know an exact we still don't have an exact list of how many of the Benin bronzes are in the British Museum, not to mention how many other looted objects from, from African nations are in our museums. The most important example of the Benin bronzes in a single collection, the second Pitt Rivers collection, was sold off on the open market in the 60s and 70s. And I've even shown how even the British Museum in the 1970s sold off some of the Benin bronzes to dealers. And thirdly, even the, the that idea of objects that are dis- that are destroyed by war, the mm. Nazi bombs that fell on Hull and on Liverpool destroyed some parts of their museums to the extent that there were destroyed Benin bronzes that survive with the bomb damage from them. So even that argument, we've seen they weren't any safer in the UK than they would have been elsewhere. And it's really time that we start seeing a bit more honesty in our museum sector. And we stop trying to see this as a political act, except insofar as we understand the politics that was put into the ideologies of these these displays in the first place and the taking of them in the first place. And we, we work constructively in the present to seek to make a better world and a better museum sector as well. You know, restitution, you have to allow for evolution you know, intellectually, for ideas to change and for the practices to change. 
This seems to me entirely uncontroversial, the idea of the returning of some objects when demanded. And I think the final thing I'd say on that, increasingly our museum goers, those audiences and stakeholders who are not attacking their museums, they love their museums. They're the people that turn up every week and go to the museums. But they increasingly demand and actually want to ask the same sorts of questions. Where did this item come from? How did it get here? And is someone somewhere you know, asking for it back. They're reasonable questions. And I want to imagine, and I think many of us in the sector want to imagine a museum's world where nothing is stolen. But instead, you know, we're we're able to see our museums as sites of exchange, collaboration, and yes, of some very difficult, you know, questions about the enduring legacies of the past. But as public spaces, that's what our museums are for. And as the public space of anthropology, we've never needed them more. Uh, Dan Hicks, this has been a fascinating, illuminating conversation. And I encourage everybody who hasn't had the chance to do to check out the Pitt Rivers Museum, whether in person or virtually, it's really worth a visit. Thank you very much for joining us, Dan. Thanks so much. If you found this discussion interesting and you want to read a bit more about it, take a look at Dan's book, The Brutish Museums. If you go to plutobooks.com and use the code BUNKER20, you'll get 20% off the paperback, hardback, and ebook editions. There's also an audiobook edition, although the discount will not apply to that. And thanks for listening. Don't forget you can support us on Patreon from £3 a month if you want to hear episodes early and ad-free. Search Patreon Bunker for more. Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell. Production by Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>